Chapter 3 of Eleven Years of Drunkard by Thomas Donner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In a short time I regained my former strength and went to work for the Chicago Northwestern Railroad Company. I was ambitious, industrious, and determined to rise. I did cheerfully and faithfully the work which was allotted to me, and soon gained the confidence of my employer. I resolved to throw down the intoxicating cup and do no more dishonor to my friends, who loved me and prayed for my success. For a time all went well with me. I bore the name of being as peaceable a boy as there was in town. But that filthy enemy, Rum, was still casting himself before me in the path of life. One evening, as I sat in a certain store reading, I was asked by a young man, who also worked for the railroad company, if I would take a walk. We had not walked far when he pulled a bottle of whiskey out of his pocket and asked me if I would like a drink. Then again I yielded to my weak passions and swallowed a draught of the fiery liquid. After that, any night, I might be seen lounging around some bar room until twelve or one o'clock, when I would reel out of the saloon, attempting to steady my steps as I walked homeward. At the same time I would join in the loud laughter, shouts and songs of my dissipated companions, who made night hideous with their yells. I would arise in the morning and go to work, my face wearing a jaded and dispirited look. From this I went into gambling, losing every night and drinking deeply all the while. I was to be found in all cases of brawls, riots, and all disturbances of the peace, a wretched bloated drunkard. Like all other drunkards, I was a scoffer at all religious things. I knew no Sabbath. I would walk the streets on Sunday, a suffering bloated wretch, and whiskey was tempting me on to reeking vice and beastliness which no heathen degradation can exceed. The lowest drinking places, the vilest concert saloons, and negro minstrels of the lowest order constituted my pastime. In two instances, while grazed by rum, my pockets were picked, and now as I sat here my thoughts go back, and I curse the hour in which I first set my foot over the threshold of one of those corrupt places of amusement. But as thousands must acknowledge today, I saw my folly too late. At that time I could be found where the lanes were the darkest and filthiest, where the dens were the deepest and foulest, and where the low bar-rooms and dance-houses were the most numerous. It was to such places as those that whiskey led me, and it was in those places I loved to spend the most of my time. When I was on the street, in company with my vulgar companions, I would assault the passer-by with insolence and profanity. The brutal, degraded classes were my sole companions, Often have I awakened in the morning and found myself cold and miserable, lying in the gutter, all of my money and part of my clothing gone. But strong drink made me believe that this did not amount to anything, and the next night I might be found in some low saloon or on the street staggering about almost crazed from the effects of liquor. I and my drunken companions rending the air with our shouts of drunken mirth. Whiskey was fast dragging me down to the lowest degradation that man can reach and many a young companion have I seen drop into a drunkard's grave. The career of a drunkard is short. Poverty, crime, disease, and sufferings, which whiskey brings upon the consumer, soon do their work, and the drunkard soon goes to prison for some crime committed in a drunken frenzy, or drops dishonored into a drunkard's grave. I carry this drinking, gambling, carousing career on for two years, spending my money and destroying my health and character. I cannot but think that God has a feeble hold on a man who will keep one of these vile dens and deal out this deadly poison to weak-minded men until their brain becomes crazed by it. 
when they know that the man whom they fill with this promoter of crime is liable in a drunken frenzy to murder his wife or some dear friend. As mentioned before, I carried on the career of a drunken, carousing gambler for two years, at the end of which time I resolved to throw down the drunkard's cup. I went to church, and as I sat in my pew listening to the words of sacred scriptures spoken by the minister, I realized how great had been my sin against the loving God, and as I walked home I called to mind the many years he had lived and suffered for my sake, and I also called to mind the last scenes of his life, in which he suffered an ignominious death on the cross for me and all mankind. Before I had reached home, I was fully determined to resist the temptation of this fiery demon, Rum, which is spreading crime, misery, and disgrace through our land. I remained at home the rest of that day, and that night I was very happy when I arose from my knees after having prayed to God to help me. The next morning I arose with a light heart and more determined than ever to shun the fiery liquid. I knew that this was a great work which I was going about. I knew it was to prepare an abode for my own soul by driving this enemy from me. My home is a humble one. I inherited a good constitution and was gifted with energy and a good portion of shrewdness. Although my education was poor, I resolved to seek my fortune in the far west, and in a short time I started for Council Bluffs, Iowa. My mother's prayers and blessings followed me. I was willing to work at anything which providence should place my way, unmindful what it might be. When I arrived at Council Bluffs, I found that work was scarce, and it was beginning to tell with fearful effect upon all classes. Persons in almost every branch of industry were thrown out of employment, and even the best known and most skillful found it difficult to obtain work. But fortune seemed to be smiling upon me, and as I went forth the next morning, I soon succeeded in obtaining a situation as brakeman on a freight train. I resolved to be a faithful, honest, and industrious boy, and in a few days I could see that my conductor felt satisfied that all work entrusted to me was performed to the best of my ability. But this did not continue for long, for one day I was sitting in front of the Pacific House. I was invited by an acquaintance to take a walk over to Harry Williams. This is a vile den, known in the bluffs as the Red Light. Here I found women and men congregated together, hardened, cruel, and vile, reeking with filth, drunkenness, obscenity, and blasphemy. I became excited and forgetting my promise to my mother when leaving home and my firm resolve never to taste strong drink again. In a short time I joined the drunken revelry, drinking all kinds of vile liquors in abundance and carrying on my drunkenness, carousing career with as much unblushing boldness as any brawler rider in that dance house. We kept up this drunken spree until twelve o'clock, when the doors were closed and I was turned into the street. I was alone, my companion having gone home about nine o'clock. I staggered about for some time, I knew not where, trying to find my way back to the hotel. I had heard of men being murdered in the vicinity of the red light, and having a revolver, I thought I would be on my guard, so I cocked it and carried it in my hand. Presently I found myself in a patch of sunflowers close to the red light, and knew that I was in a noted two-acre patch of sunflowers, where so many robberies and murders had been committed. I began to think of getting out of this dangerous place, but I did not have long to think, for I was seized from behind and hurled to the ground. After I had fallen, I fired my revolver twice in succession, but at random. The next instant I was struck on the head with some kind of heavy instrument. I must have remained unconscious until morning, for the next thing which I can remember is being awakened by the feeble voice of an old woman who, with trembling fingers, was endeavoring to wipe the blood from my face. I was faint from suffering and lost the blood. 
I rose to a sitting posture and looked around me. The sight which met my eyes was sickening. In the place where my head had lain was a pool of clotted blood, in which my hat lay, torn in pieces. I passed my hand to my pocket and found that I had been robbed of my pocketbook and revolver, probably by some ruffians who had lain in wait for me. Sorrowfully I looked at my tattered, blood-stained garments. I began to think that a drunken man's prospects were not very fair in that locality. The old lady informed me that as she was going for a pail of water, she found me lying in a narrow path which led through the sunflowers to the well, and seeing that I had been foully dealt with, thought it her duty to help me. She invited me to come and stay at her house until I recovered. I arose and followed the kind old lady to her cabin, a sad wreck of my formal self. As I followed this woman to her house, I resolved to throw away my life, for I considered it not worth keeping. I felt as if I were in hell. I resolved not to endure my torture longer, and was determined that as soon as night came, I would seek rest beneath the quiet waters of the Missouri River. As soon as we reached the house, I went to bed, first having washed the blood from my face and hands. Of course, the whole neighborhood was informed of what had happened, and in a short time, groups of boys and old men, girls and old women, thronged around my bed to look at my bruised and bloated face. After they had satisfied their curiosity and departed, I fell into a heavy sleep and did not wake until dark. I then arose and dressed myself and went out. Up from the south came great black clouds, and I could hear the low muttering of distant thunder. The wind at one moment sinking to a sullen calm, and the next dashing its hot breath into my face. It soon began to rain, but I cared very little whether it rained or not, for I was on the brink of madness. I threw myself down under the branches of a clump of trees, unmindful of the storm, which was gradually gathering its forces, until suddenly it burst upon the sunflowers, lashing them into a fury by the terrific gales of wind, and almost blinding me by the flashes of lightning. The whole aspect of nature was so changed as to deprive even the bravest man of all confidence in himself. It was then that I abandoned the resolve of taking my own life. The refreshing rain cooled my head somewhat, and I began to think about going back to the hotel. I lay under the trees for some time. I do not know for how long, nor do I know how long I would have remained there had not the old lady called to me, saying that I must stay in the house, or I would catch cold in my head. I told her of my intention to go back to the hotel, but to this she would not listen, but handed me a Bible and told me to read it. I moved closer to the light and opened the Bible, and as I looked over the pages of that holy book, I saw more plainly than ever before the sufferings and death of Jesus, and was struck with horror and indignation against those perfidious Jews who put our Savior to such a cruel death. I shuddered when I thought of the terrible crime they had committed. But still, when I considered, I could see that crime which the Jews committed in crucifying our Savior only surpasses those which are committed daily all over our land by whiskey. As I sat there thinking the Jews seemed even more excusable in crucifying their Messiah, than man who tampers with and allows himself to be tempted by God's worst enemy. It is true their crime was enormous, but they crucified one whom they knew not, and when they knew him they returned confounded, knocking their breasts in sorrow for what they had done. Man has no excuse, for he knows all the sufferings which Christ has endured for him, and the Jews seem to me to be the most excusable, for if they had known God, they would not have crucified him. It is true the Jews killed his sacred body, but here is a man whose life is a succession of perpetual benefits, drinking this fiery liquid, which is no other than the devil in disguise. 
Thus my thoughts ran until they wandered back to my dear old home. When I thought of the last promise to my dear old mother that I would shun whiskey, my head dropped on my breast, and covering my face with my hands, I wept bitterly. I sat in the position until the clock struck ten. Then I arose, and dashing the tears from my eyes, I resolved to rebuke this evil spirit and lay down my burden of sin. The old lady's husband asked me if I did not wish to retire, to which I answered in the affirmative when he concluded me to my room. I fell upon my knees and tried to pray. I tried to beseech my heavenly Father to sustain me in my sore extremity, but emotion choked my utterance, and I could only weep. For at least an hour I remained in this position, finding relief only in tears. Then I went to bed, longing for death to come, and kindly relieve me of my agony. The pain in my head was maddening, and the memory of that day's terrible sufferings makes me sick at heart even now. Whether I went to sleep or not, I do not know but it is evident that I became deranged in the night and escaped unnoticed from the cabin but with part of my clothing on me. Without boots, hat, or coat, I wandered off, I knew not whither, until I was picked up by a farmer who, with his two sons, was plowing on his farm about four miles from Council Bluffs. The farmer took me home with him and put me in bed, where I lay partly unconscious for several days. When I had fully regained my consciousness, I was told that when found I could not give any account of myself, so it was thought I was a lunatic who had escaped from some asylum. So they also told me that I was very ill when found, and for many days after I lay almost unconscious. After my awakening to consciousness, I improved rapidly, under the treatment of the kind-hearted farmer and his wife. And, after a lapse of four weeks, I returned to the old lady's cabin and related my sad story. She told me that she employed several men to look for me in the morning after I left her cabin, and after a search of five days it concluded that I committed suicide by jumping into the river, so the search was abandoned. I now made a firmer resolution than ever to break from this terrible bondage and went to work for my formal conductor and conditioned that I would not drink strong drink. But all the time I had a terrible craving for the filthy poison, and had resumed my work, but a short time when this grim demon again led me from the righteous path into the filth and slime of the gutter, a loathsome, bloated mass of humanity. Every night I could be found at the red light or some other degraded place. One night, about twelve o'clock, as I was returning from one of those corrupt places of amusement, I was met by a ruffian who demanded my money, but I did not feel inclined to give him my money, and so I made no answer. He was a man about my own size, as near as I could judge through the darkness, and I resolved to measure my strength with his before giving up my money. I tried to tell him that I had no money, but he interrupted me with such a flood of curses that I was unable to finish the sentence. At length he started toward me, and as he did so he produced a club about eighteen inches long from under his coat, and with a malignant look again demanded my money. Mister, said I, looking him boldly in the face, I have no money. I was about to say something further, but he sprang upon me, seizing me by the throat, and had the club raised above my head, when, before the blow descended, I seized him by the collar of his coat, and drew him close to me. Reaching down, I caught him by the foot with the other hand, and pushing him back, he fell to the ground. I kept hold of his foot and held it close to my breast, and put one foot on his neck. He was completely in my power. At the beginning of the struggle I was somewhat frightened, but now I was angry, and my blood seemed to course through my veins like fire. I remembered how I had been beaten in the sunflowers, perhaps by this same villain. I snatched the club from his hand and struck him blow after blow, until he cried murder, but I did not stop until my arm ached. Then, with a well-directed kick, 
which caused the blood to gush from his nostrils, I rolled him over on the ground. Until this time I had been too busy to look around me, but now, as I looked up, I saw two men, but a short distance off, walking rapidly toward me. His screams had been heard. My first impulse was to run, but I knew that I was guilty of no wrong whatever, and deserved commendation rather than punishment, and I made up my mind not to run, let the result be what it might. The man I had beaten now rose and stood looking at me, pale with rage. Not a word was uttered until the two men came up. They were dirty, ragged, rough-looking men. I knew by the looks of them they were not friends of mine. What is the matter, said one, fastening his snakish eyes upon me. I remained silent, doubting the proprietor of staying and abiding by the result. But I had not long to think, for the ruffian, recognizing the others as friends, sprang toward me, saying that he would now have satisfaction, and one of the others stepped forward, saying that if I made the least resistance, he would blow my brains out. What could I do but obey? I knew that I was in the power of these three desperate roughs, so I dropped my hands to my side and remained motionless while they searched my pockets. Oh, it was then I despised myself for my own conduct and almost cursed the day of my birth. After they robbed me, two of the men were willing to let me go my way, but the third wanted satisfaction for the beating he had received. He was determined to hang me and started for a rope. Whereto-fore, when I thought of the loss of my friends, social standing and reputation, I longed to die and be freed forever from my misery. But now, when this ruffian returned and tied the rope about my neck, and I seemed to be standing on the brink of eternity, I shuddered at the very thought of that leap in the dark, for I knew that I was not prepared to die. As I stood there, feelings of unutterable agony overwhelmed me. I saw by this time that the men who came up were under the influence of liquor. I began now to realize my danger. I looked up to the spangled heavens and thought of the kingdom of glory which God has prepared for me and all mankind beyond those starry depths, if we will but follow him. I thought of the many and great benefits which God was pleased to confer upon me and all mankind. Then, in the time of danger, I could see that the distance between my infinite God and myself was so great that I could not return him the least requital for even the smallest of his favors. When I was drinking this filthy poison, which had led me hither, I despised and rejected God, as all men do who drink. But now, in the time of my tribulation, when the grave seemed to be opening up before me, I remember that I was indebted to him upon a thousand accounts and upon a thousand titles. He created me and all mankind in his own image and likeness, and he preserves the world every moment from falling into its original nothingness. He has commanded the sun, moon, and stars to wait upon me. He has given his commandments to the different seasons of the year to furnish man with all things necessary and all other living creatures he has made subject to man. He has done all this for me, and I, in return, despised and rejected him for the devil's strongest agent, rum. Thus my thoughts ran until I was awakened from my reverie by such a shocking expression of blasphemy as is not decorous to repeat here. Up to this time, the three men were talking in subdued tones and with earnest gestures. One of them acted as if he wanted to let me go. I heard them say that I had done nothing but what any one of them would have done had he been placed in my situation, and that they were some distance from the woods, and it would be morning before they would be able to find a suitable tree on which to hang me. But his pleadings were in vain, for as I stood in silence trying to think why they did not take a more convenient method of dispatching me, the first villain stepped up to me and commanded me to cross my hands. You need not bind me, said I. I am ready to go anywhere with you. 
he struck me a heavy blow in the face and with an oath and a threat commanded me again to cross my hands perceiving that my resistance would be altogether vain i crossed my hands and humbly submitted to whatever disposition he wished to make of me thereupon he tied the rope tightly around my wrists and slipped a cord within my elbows and tied it firmly behind me making it impossible for me to move my hands one of the ruffians then took the rope and making an awkward noose placed it around my neck and i was ready to be led to the place of execution now then said one of the ruffians where shall we hang him one proposed a tree that he knew of but a short distance from there but his comrade objected saying there was a house close by and proposed taking me to the grove finally they fixed upon the ladder and i was ordered to march all this time i uttered not a word but i could see that one of them was not in favor of hanging me we trudged on for about an hour up hills and down dales until we came to a clump of trees standing in the center of a large prairie after tying my ankles one of them climbed to the top of a small tree and tied a rope to it when he came down two of them bent the tree until the top of it touched my head i was entirely powerless hope died within my heart surely my time had come i should never behold the light of another day never behold the faces of my friends again i could never see my mother again the sweet anticipation i had cherished with such fondness i should that hour struggle through the fearful agonies of death no one would mourn for me none revenge for me soon my form would be mouldering in that distant soil far from home and friends or perhaps be cast into the missouri river tears flowed down my cheeks but they only afforded a subject of insulting comment for my executioners just as they were about to tie the rope which was about my neck to the one which was on the tree they were surprised by two men who sprang out from among the trees both with pistol in hand and one of them spoke in a firm determined manner as follows hold on i have a word or two to put in here you had better listen to them whoever lays another hand on that boy is a dead man in their surprise and fright they let go of the tree and on springing back to its place it struck me on the head hurling me to the ground when one of the men who had rescued me stepped over to where i lay and cut the cord from my wrists and ankles and also slipped the noose from my neck i then staggered to my feet and my heart leapt with unbounded joy when i recognized the two men who undoubtedly saved my life as friends who also were employed by the railroad company the robber showed no weapons but all through this scene kept blustering and threatening but it seemed to have no effect on my resolute rescuers they held their pistols in their hands and the cool manner indicated that they knew how to use them here the three robbers and my two rescuers began to talk and a long dialogue ensued in which the ruffian i had beaten was told by my friends that they had witnessed the flogging he received and had so richly deserved they then told them that if they had any regard for their own safety they would leave that locality as soon as possible they evidently afraid of the two men sneaked off like cowards as they were and we saw no more of them a short time after i was walking by the jail i recognized one of them looking through the grating and learned that he was charged with picking a man's pockets but when i informed the authorities of my adventure with him and his companions a graver crime rose up against him and he was tried and sentenced to prison End of chapter 3